KCF Technologies presents Industrial Transformation, Stories of Failure and Success from the Front Lines of American Manufacturing. Welcome back to the Industrial Transformation Podcast. This is Jeremy Frank of KCF Technologies. And in this installment, I have the pleasure of, of sitting down virtually with Brian Roncheck. Brian Roncheck is an engineer, a reliability engineer with U.S. Steel, and is, is really a very dynamic thinker in driving forward some of the most innovative new practices in uh, reliability and industrial transformation. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks, Jeremy. Really, really appreciate it. It's good to be here. Yeah. Same for me. I, I'd like to just kick it off. Can you, can you let us just get to know you a little bit? Can you tell us about your, your early background, your, your career, and how you ended up in the position that you're in now? Yeah, sure. And I guess, so I guess uh, we'll go all the way back. You know, I, I grew up in, in Indiana and never, never once, you know, just regular kind of country guy, you know, whatever. Never once really thought about the military, didn't have any military in my family, but somehow I got snagged into the Marine Corps about my last year, uh, Christmas, Christmas time, right before I graduated and ended up, uh, you know, that recruiter must have had my number because he had me hook, line and sinker. So I ended up, you know, my, my aspirations were always to be an aerospace engineer. Uh, I had a pilot's license in high school. I really enjoyed model airplanes and those kind of things. And it just felt like it fit. And so in that conversation, you know, we kind of talked about, well, I still want to go to school. I still want to do, you know, uh, aerospace and these things. And, and we talked about different programs. So I kind of had a roadmap in front of me, you know, even whether it was a nailed down roadmap or there was a lot of risk involved, you know, I didn't know at the time, but I kind of had a roadmap that I had already laid out for my career, you know, right out of high school. And, um, so I joined the Marine Corps, started working on F-18s as a airframes and structures mechanic for a brief time, and I got picked up for an officer program and ended up going back to Purdue University to uh, get my aerospace degree. And, uh, you know, after having been in the real world for a little bit, I got real tired of being at school. So I ended up finishing um, my degree in three and a half years um, and got back out to the fleet. And of course, in, in the Marine Corps' ultimate wisdom and, and knowledge, uh, my job became infantry officer. So with an aerospace engineering degree, I was on the ground shooting things and blowing things up. And that was honestly the best <laughs> time I ever had. And, and if you, you know, it, it is funny if you think about it, because you're like, well, this guy should be, you know, he's an aerospace engineer. He should be in some sort of technical field. But the reality was, is that um, while I was very good at math, um, I was very bad at anything else. You know, so if it's dealing with people or psychology or history or memorizing any of that stuff, I was terrible at it. But being in that environment and that, you know, Marines never fail, you know, what I mean, it, it gave me the opportunity to really develop some skills that I didn't, uh, I wasn't born with and really didn't develop as a kid. And so, so you take that, you know, take the, the idea of Marines never fail, the idea of, you know, the weapons and the equipment and the personnel always being able to accomplish the mission, you know, when it's needed and uh, bring that to the civilian world. And so, you know, 20 years later now, you know, I, I was at ExxonMobil for a little bit in maintenance and uh, maintenance management and uh, found this posting for reliability with U.S. Steel. And I had been introduced to it, didn't really understand what it what it was fully, but I knew that it was pretty all encompassing and I knew that it was uh, something that was designed to make stuff work, make it work right the first time, you know, whether it's safety or productivity or whatever. And so I took the job and real fortunate because uh, the, the leadership down there were very fond of the military. Some of them were them, themselves veterans, and uh, they probably dumped you know, tens of thousands of dollars into my education that first year to get CMRP certifications. Um, got some other, you know, classes and certifications by some other third parties, got, you know, maintenance, lubrication, an analyst and, and a bunch of other things. And they gave me the freedom to really start working on um, improving, improving the mill. They almost pretty much just let me go. And, uh, and so throughout that first year there, there was a point 
when I realized that the light finally came on and I realized that my last, you know, career, my last lifetime in, as a veteran in the Marines was centered around reliability. We don't call it reliability. We just call it, make sure your gun doesn't jam, make sure your truck starts every time, make sure the tank can roll and fire make sure your, your Marines are prepared with the procedures they need to, you know, accomplish the mission. But that's all we're doing in the civilian world is, you know, ensuring that everything works when it's supposed to as a reliability engineer and with a reliability program in general. So according to Malcolm Gladwell, that's, you know, almost 20 years of experience. That makes me a master of reliability. So even though I've only been here for three and a half years now, I'm happy to say I'm a master. So (laughs) there you go. No doubt. Well, and thank you for your service. You know, we certainly appreciate that. But also, oh, yeah, no I, problem. I, I thank you just from getting to know you so well over the last few years, back to, to ExxonMobil and now U.S. Steel. I'm glad that you're able to take what you've learned and apply it in the industrial world because we're getting to see that. And it, there, there's a lot there. Is it maybe for, you know, there are so many people in industry that have military background. And I, I'm curious if you could just relate a couple of the, you know, what's similar and what's different? What are what are the same kind of challenges you deal with in the military that you also deal with in the, in the mills and what's different? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of similarities and there are a lot of differences, you know, the, the, mostly the differences are that I've seen so far are really dealing with people because in the military, there is no union environment. There is no, you know, hurt feelings, you know, report or anything like that. There is, Hey, if you get told to do something, that's, that's your job to do it. And there is no, you know, of, of course, there's always opportunity to provide feedback and make recommendations and as an advisor. But when, when it comes down to the line and your boss says, this is what I want done and it needs to happen right now, it happens. And uh, we don't see that uh, out in the civilian world. There's a lot of, it's a lot more softer, you know, a lot more people skills required to get stuff done. And a lot of times we don't have those people skills and we end up hurting, you know, in whether it's production or maintenance or whatever, because, you know, we don't have that influence. Also, so military, it's, it's a direct influence. It's you work for me and it's going to happen. Um, but here, you know, there, there's a lot of value in having that kind of influence and that kind of leadership skill with, uh, your workers, you know, management and union to be able to inspire them to make, uh, to take the right actions and get stuff done. And when we don't have those skills, uh, we suffer as an organization, I guess on the similarity side, a lot of things are the same. We, we maintain equipment, we have procedures, we have, you know, a chain of command, you know, um, there, there is a goal at the end, you know, to, to make money or produce steel or, or whatever the product is. And, and so, you know, a lot of those things are very similar. Um, and, and I guess within that too, that, you know, the, the caveat is, is that, you know, we pay $400 for a toilet seat, you know, in the, in the government. Right. <laughs> um, but that's not because the toilet seat is that expensive and it's not because we're not getting some value out of it. The reason we pay that much is because we're paying for reliability. When you buy a jet aircraft, you get all of the procedures, all of the maintenance procedures, the failure modes and effects analysis, you get everything that you need. And those documents are kept up. Whereas on the civilian side, a lot of times we look at that from an accounting standpoint, and we say, no, I don't want to pay for so much of that. Just give me the equipment, give me some of the basic PMs and we'll take it from there. So you get the same equipment, uh, you get a different level of documentation. It's a little bit cheaper and then, then uh, it's on you, you know, so, so that, that would be a difference too, I guess. Got it. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of curious for your honest answer to this. If, if you, uh, on the leadership side of it, you know, just having strong uh, executive authority and, and command and control in the military makes things cleaner and, and you have to be more, uh, you know, you have to be more collaborative and work with other, you know, complexities and nuance in the, in the industrial commercial world. I'm curious, do you see any advantages to that? Or if you had your way, would you just apply kind of military command and control and the factories would run better? Or is there, are there advantages to the, to having the nuance? No, I I think it's a, it's a mix of both. There's plus and minuses to each, especially um, when, you know, those kind of command and control structures are abused. You know, we have a, uh, two objectives in the Marine Corps. One is mission accomplishment and another one is troop welfare. And a lot of, you know, high ranking officers and even a lot of low ranking officers and senior enlisted, they, they look at those things different ways. Some look at it as, you know, first comes mission accomplishment, second comes troop welfare. Others look at it, at it as uh, two 
two objectives that both accomplish the same goal and have to be used together. So, so in, in you, you can understand that, you know, very clearly if you say, okay, one general number one takes stance number one, and he says mission accomplishment is first, is first, nobody sleeps, nobody eats, we just have to go right now, we have to get this done. And he, you know, destroys his, his uh, personnel through, you know, just exhaustion and attrition. And maybe he accomplished the mission, but it's at an extreme cost of his own, of his own cost, you know, of his own forces. And the second person says, uh, this, in the same role, says, we're going to accomplish the mission through troop welfare. We're going to make sure that our people are trained, fed, rested, and uh, in, equipped both mentally and physically to go attack this challenge. And when he accomplishes the mission, he's going to accomplish it with much less, much less cost on the uh, on the friendly side so when you look at that on the civilian on the civilian side and i say okay big boss manager do i want to implement a military style control uh, command and control to my organization you know if if you're only viewing that as hey well what i say goes and if you don't like it then you know hit the road you're gone and i'm going to put in somebody else you know you're going to have casualties and it's not always going to be you know what you think you know it's going to be some people that are just like i should be respected i don't want to be treated like that um, i don't agree with you and maybe legitimately the manager is making a poor decision and somebody's trying to help him and he says nope you're going to do it my way and then you know that person walks away and then of course the mission fails anyway so flip it the other way military style of command and control Sometimes I think it would be good to have more accountability. Um, you know, whether it's the managers or union, having accountability is absolutely fantastic because it brings an organization together. It doesn't really tear it apart. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's kind of a kind of a mixed bag, and it definitely takes a microscope or a magnifying glass to see you know the differences and, and the pieces from both that need to be used. Yeah, well, definitely, Brian. I, it's just, it's a, um, you know, it's not something that can be easily answered or solved. It's just, I'm really interested to hear you describe your your observations. And let's jump in now to, so into your role. And you've, you've gone from uh, your first location at U.S. Steel and you're now up in Pittsburgh, which is, you know, just for some context, my hometown, I grew up, you know, 10 miles from, from the, uh, you know, Urban Works Mill. And, uh, you know, a lot of the whole Pittsburgh economy is in the shadow of the steel industry going back to Carnegie Steel right. years ago. And, um, you know, it's just it's uh, in a sense for a long time, it was everything for, for Pittsburgh. It drove the whole economy and um, you're there now. So what are, what is it that you're trying to accomplish and, and what are you doing? Uh, what's your focus? Well, you know, again, my focus is, you know, reliability. And, and I think, maybe I'll take a minute to answer this one. You know, I think that a lot of people in industry right now look at reliability and think of it only in terms of the reliability engineer. You think of this person, this engineer looks at that asset. We can do root cause analysis. We can do, you know, PM optimization. We can do failure modes and effects analysis. And they're trying to help that piece of equipment not fail. But we're only looking at it on the scope of mechanical reliability, where a good reliability program is really an all-encompassing all program. So it extends to uh, management and leadership. It extends to procurement. It extends to you know the sales. And uh, you know I can tell you some stories of how at U.S. Steel already, you know, sales and procurement in, in different organizations outside of maintenance and operations have had an enormous impact on our physical reliability of the assets. So, so reliability is much bigger. So my goal, um, and, and I realize I'm filling the position of reliability engineer right now, which, you know, maybe doesn't sound like much, but I have been given a lot of freedom to reach out beyond this, you know, this um, particular role and interact with a lot of our senior executives and a lot of other, you know, uh, IT uh, departments and big data and, uh, you know, process innovations and, and different departments to, to help start drawing these things, uh, these parts together so that we're making better, better decisions together in a, in a holistic way. So my goal is, you know, improving the, the OEE performance uh, within the mill uh, in a way that, that involves all the different players in the game and in a way that can be duplicated, you know, across the company 
so that when I'm done here, we can start pulling out the, the process and the stamp and, and stamping it all over U.S. Steel and to help really make U.S. Steel the iconic corporation like it used to be. Yeah, and in many ways is already uh, re-becoming as, as, I've, as we've talked about and I've seen. I wonder, Brian, for those, you know, a lot of our listeners are in the industrial world in various industries, but a lot of people have not been in a modern steel mill. Can you just talk about kind of the, just, just describe the environment that you work in for a moment, if you would, and, and also especially some of the problems. Like what is it that when, when you talk about improving OEE and improving reliability, what is it that needs to be exactly improved? What are the issues out there? Well, you say you say the modern mill, and I got to chuckle a little bit because we just you know finished purchasing you know Big River Steel down in in Arkansas, and that really is a modern mill, you know, fully automated. Um, the, even the personnel structure is totally you know in a modern, and, and they're very very productive, very good. And the rest of U.S. Steel is still in you know the 1900s, the early 1900s. Most of our equipment is you know at least a half a century old, if not older, and so. But but also that's that's not the problem that keeps us from from progressing. Uh, the the real hurdles, you know. So any anybody that ever comes out and says, you know, well our equipment's really old, it's not new, it can't be done. It's like I'll, I'll call them on that one because it absolutely can be done. The only hurdle and obstacle that you have is the people and the culture, right? And we have some great people here, and and. I'm I'm glad to actually be here because of because of the people because I can look at any one of the managers here and any one of the guys on the floor and we can have a conversation about you know improving reliability and at the end of the day when we both you know go our separate ways you know they will have have realized that there really is a way to make this equipment work better and we really can improve the quality of of their work life and I will walk away with you know more information and more ammunition to you know, to take back and start developing a plan, you know, to implement that and better understanding of the actual mill, you know, so there's, there's absolutely no, you know, no reason any piece of equipment can't be brought to the modern, you know, performance, even if it's a hundred years old, but it it's really is the people and the culture and you just have to present it in the right way, present the information, get them on board. And uh, once you get the people on board, it starts to follow. Yeah, I love the way you describe that, Brian. It's so important because that is, you know, the bringing things into industry 4.0 is in industrial transformation is so much the focus of what we talk about here. And I think there's a lot of people out there, especially technologists who think that it's it's all about the technology and it just isn't. When no. you, know, you, you need technology to move into the the future, but you, what you said is just it's all about the people and culture. Because that's that's how you actually enact change. From what I've seen, is that yeah, and and you know I can bring it. I can bring this back. You know, two decades. Um, you know, and I, I feel fortunate that it was the Marine recruiter that got my attention, and not somebody else. You know, all the services that got some great friends in in other services, and you know, respect all veterans. But the Marine Corps is a little bit unique in that you know when when uh, the Marines go to Congress and they ask for a piece of equipment. That's really all they ask for. They say, we need a new Abrams tank. Here's this, you know, they, and they sign that into the bill and we get a new Abrams tank. And when somebody like the Air Force goes to Congress and they say, we need, we need a new bomber, that bill has a bomber and new barracks and new commissaries and, you know, new, new facilities on a base and exercise equipment. And they get all of that. We don't ever ask for that. You know, most of our airports and our air terminals are, you know, come sit down on a, on a stack of pallets and wait for your flight. Whereas, you know, we stopped in, uh, in Oklahoma once and, and, you know, the air force facility was, you know, marble countertops, leather couches, and big screen TVs. And this was in the late nineties. You know, we're like, geez, these guys got money. So we've learned to live with almost nothing. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's not a matter of, do you have all the money and the technology and everything else to get it done? There's, there's really only a focus on people and, and with the Marine Corps being focused on people and, and making people capable of accomplishing the mission with whatever we have available, you know, you translate that into, into the, the industrial world. And it's really what it is. You know, you have old equipment, but what can you do with it? Don't tell me what you can't do with it. Tell me what you can do with it. Yeah. I love the parallels and I agree with you. It is, it's um, in, you know, there's a couple old phrases that are in my head as you describe that, just the, it, especially the, you know, the, the mills, the equipment being older and that it's really about the people, you know, it's uh, 
One of them is, is that uh, they don't make them like they used to. And that's true. A lot of that old equipment is, is really rock solid. It's just a matter of how it's being treated by the people in the culture. And, um, and it, it, there is a better way. Right. And so, but it does depend on the technology. Um, I guess the other one is if if it ain't broke, don't fix it is one that like that also relates to a lot of the challenges that exist in the modern world. But again, you know, if we're not doing things the right way, if our people and our culture aren't supporting best practices, you need to throw some technology into it and you need to do it right so that you enact positive change. One of the things I find most compelling about what you're doing, what's so special is that is that you're as you kind of alluded to, you know, you're already going well beyond, beyond reliability. You're affecting kind of the whole organization and you're building an ecosystem of a variety of, of helpers and, and role players and, and, and uh, ecosystem providers. Can you, can you paint that picture for us a little bit? So you're, you're speaking of like the accelerating reliability strategy that we've been talking about? Yes, yes. Okay, right. Yeah. So, well, this is, you know, again, this is looking at it from a holistic view. I'm the guy from the outside. You know, I walk into U.S. Steel and, and a lot of the people here are absolutely fantastic. And they've they've learned how to do what they have to with what they have. And they've kind of gotten into a groove over however many years. But that ends up narrowing their their vision and their scope. And, and especially when things are very tight, you know, like the business has been for a long time, there's not a lot of time to get out there and go to industrial conferences and, and, and different conventions and learn about newest technology and then take the time to implement it. You know, so I, I come in from the outside with a different perspective and, and I've been able to, you know, share that perspective. So when I look at U.S. Steel and actually a lot of, a lot of companies these days, this probably applies to most of them, is is we try to do everything ourselves. There's an aversion to reaching outside for for real help and for real partnership. And we try and do everything ourselves. And then we don't realize that we not only don't have the knowledge and expertise resident, but if we wanna get it, it's gonna take a lot of money for training, a lot of time for experience. And the results that we're looking for aren't gonna happen on day number one. So with that in mind and personnel and training and, and that time being a constraint, the question that I've you know, tried to solve for myself is how do we get the results right away? How do we, you know, how do we have the knowledge right away? How do we see the impacts and how do we do all this right away? And the only answer is you have to find somebody who does it better than anybody else and you have to bring them on board as a part of your team and you have to find a way to you know, align your efforts so that you're both reaching for the same goal. So with that in mind, you know, I look at, you know, uh, reliability and, and the different predictive technologies that, that we have available. So I'm looking at vibration analysis and I say, well, we can run a route or we can install, you know, some very expensive wired sensors and hook them up to our you know, to our system and we can look at that, but we don't have anybody that can really do the analysis, uh, not effectively. Uh, we might be able to set a few alarms, but we won't be able to really dive in and see the root cause or the failure modes. We're just going to spend a lot of money changing components unnecessarily when all we really needed was an alignment or, you know, who knows what the uh, situation is, or maybe we allow a failure. We didn't need to, but if I reach outside and I find someone who does uh, continuous monitoring who sits there and watches the signal for me and can tell me, hey, this is what I'm concerned about and this is why and this is what I think you should do. You need to go change this component out because it really is failing or you just need to do an alignment or, you know, uh, shim the base because of soft foot and whatever it is. Now, now I've immediately saved however many thousands of dollars because I didn't allow that component to fail or because I didn't change a component that really just needed an adjustment. Right. So so whatever it is happening, I'm much more efficient from day number one. And so I apply that to all predictive technologies. Who else can we get to? You know, ultrasonics. Can we find somebody who does continuous monitoring for ultrasonics? Can we find somebody who does continuous monitoring for motor current analysis? Uh, can we do somebody that that will bring all of our our tribology data up into a cloud and somebody that will you know tell us? Um, you know, our, our lubrication uh, conditions and, and our, our breather, desiccant breather conditions and bring all that into one place and do all the analysis for us, then now, we, now we've got, 
you know, time to catch up. Now we've got time to start learning about this ourselves. And uh, we have time to do this because we're saving money and we're moving down the cost curve. We're getting better. And uh, we didn't have to wait for that, you know, return on investment of lots of training and lots of experience and, and all sorts of investment in equipment because somebody else is taking care of this for us. Yeah, it's it's a powerful thing to describe, Brian. And I, I see so many organizations struggling with that because it's hard to know what you what to do. You know, you, you know, you want to get results and ideally you want to get results right away. And, and yet I I think what you're doing is pretty remarkable because you're, you're actually taking meaningful steps that do yield results right away. You know, making smart decisions that, that give, you know, more or less immediate benefit. Can you give us a story? I mean, I know, I know some of the successes that you've had um, at U.S. Steel. Can you just paint for us a an example of something you've accomplished that you're proud of? So, yeah. So, you know, with, with one of our areas, you know, we have a, we have the open coil annealing area. It's a bunch of uh, base units that are furnace units. Basically it's a, it's a fan that's under the floor and you stack steel on top of it, put it under a furnace and cook it. And, um, you know, again, back to that holistic, you know, reliability, you know, so, so years ago, it's actually almost three years ago now, um, two things happened at the same time. And we didn't know about one of them and it caused havoc for two years, two and a half, almost three years. And, uh, and, and what that was, was, uh, on the procurement side, one of our suppliers was given the freedom to find lower cost bearings and replace them for us as part of our cost savings project. And they did that. They replaced a, uh, a, a flange bearing with a, a different, a, a different bearing. And it really should have been the same performance, should have been a lot of things, uh, but it wasn't. And they didn't tell anybody about it. They, they just supplied that, and that's what showed up in our warehouse the next time. And at the same time, another supplier that had oil seals um, changed their supplier for the springs inside the seals, and the springs started failing. So as soon as one of our base uh, fan units failed, you know, the, the team here started looking into it, and they found... They found the, the seal failure. They found the springs and they started working with the seal company, uh, multiple iterations of trying out new seals and trying out new springs and nothing seemed to be helping. And that was, you know, for a good 12, 18 months that we had this problem. Uh, the, the mechanics received a new bearing on the flange and they looked at it and uh, they just kind of shook their heads and you know because of the culture they just said well you know this is the same as everything else they're just going to keep getting cheaper and cheaper till they put us out of business so they never told anybody they just took the new bearing and it since it didn't fit they would beat it on the shaft with a hammer of course you beat a bearing with a hammer you're going to induce you know burnelling and it's going to start that failure you know from installation so what was happening then is we would install the fan unit that failure on the flange would transfer into the belts and into the sheaves and into the other bearing and into the, the the other bearing with the oil seal. And the thing would fail again after two months. We had, I think over the last 12 months, we had 35 failures on just 15 different fan units. You know, so it's, they're only lasting a couple months and they're dying. They should be lasting 10 years. But that failure, that procurement uh, caused, I won't say our procurement caused, but the procurement process caused, um, was hidden because other components were failing. So we applied uh, the predictive technologies. We got uh, the base fans covered in the, the vibration monitors, the continuous monitoring uh, vibration monitors. And our analyst calls us up and says, and says, hey, I know you guys just replaced that fan unit last night, but the flange bearing is failing already. And that gave us the, the finally gave us the heads up and pointed us in the right direction. I started going to talk to the mechanics and uh, they were like, yeah, we wish it was the, the original bearing. This is a cheap knockoff. And, and then we started going back to procurement and then we got back to the supplier and we started talking. So that's, it's been able to save millions of dollars a year in failures. And that was, that was since November. So now we've been November, December, January, February, this is March. We're, we're going into our fifth month without an unplanned failure in that area where it was, you know, what, 35, that was three, three per month before. And it's given us also the chance to go back to, you know, the supply chains and procurement and, and ask to set up rules for making those kind of changes. Like, Hey, great. We want to, we want to save money on a bearing. That's fantastic. 
anybody that uses that bearing should have the opportunity to run a test on the replacement or you know validate that it's a good replacement before somebody that's outside of the mill uh, finalizes that decision and if we can do it that way then we're, we're golden maybe there's another bearing that's cheaper that we could use but that one that one didn't work i really appreciate you taking us through that story brian because it is it's again there, there's so much talk about digital transformation industrial transformation ai all this stuff but in, until you get down and really peel back the onion on a, on a real case like that something you know critical where there's just some problem that's solvable and you just, it's too complicated. You can't get enough insight or awareness to, to tackle the right problem, but that's how you do it. I mean, that's so getting results right away. I love it. Thank you for sharing that, that story. Yeah. And that's, you know, that really, it kind of speaks to the mentality that we have a lot and, and I get it. Corporations are big. We all have shareholders and, and people that want us to provide, you know, that, that return on their investment. They want to be positive every quarter. And sometimes what that translates into is a either real or perceived, you know, that we just have to get stuff done. So we can't afford a failure. We can't afford a safety failure. We can't afford this to happen. So we're going to make this dummy proof, right? We're going to put things in place, technology or otherwise, that makes it impossible for it to fail. And, and one thing I've learned over the years is if you make something dummy proof, somebody will make a better dummy. <laughs> and uh, and so the the real key to any success is is training and it's people. You'll never have a, a artificial intelligence that is able to deal with the same things that a person is. Artificial intelligence is fantastic, and I want all sorts of it. But you always have to have people involved, and those people have to be highly trained. So investing in people is not a it's not an optional. It's a it's a you have to do this, or you know you're risking something. Yeah, I so appreciate that you described that, especially, I mean, we're just completely aligned on that because everything's changing. You know, it's it's just people are just so good at learning and developing. And as the problems, you know, you can solve today's problem, but what about tomorrow's problem? You need to prepare right. people for that organizationally. Well, what would you say, Brian? I mean, because, you know, something I also you hear everywhere is just there's a lot of workforce challenges here in the United States and globally. Um, just with, you know, a lot of the experts that work in industry are are at or near the age of retirement and we're losing a lot of expertise. So it becomes, you know, particularly challenging in these next five to 10 years. What, what would you say kind of organizationally, how, what can we learn from what you're doing and, and, and navigate those challenges? Well, if, if there's anything that I would share, it's, you know, of course it's people are the most important. They're the most important part of any, any organization. Um, and so, you're right. You know, people get old, they retire, they leave, they take a lot of knowledge with them. And what are you left with? And what you're left with is whatever investment that you as a company have made in your people uh, while you still had the cushion of the older people with the experience. And so we we, we look at it from a, a purely numbers and in, in, in HR type of standpoint. And you say, well, we have this many personnel, we're fully staffed, we're, we're good. You know what I mean? But really our you have that many personnel, but what's their skill level? What's their knowledge level? And, and how much are you doing to prepare them for the next step? So training is paramount. Um, you know, taking those people that you have and having a robust training program, uh, investing in their minds, uh, going through, you know, uh, scenarios, bringing in people that, that are not normally on teams for looking at the future and, and, you know, bring in a handful of guys off the floor when you're looking at what the next prospects are at the highest level of the company and, and hear their feedback and, and start to, you know, bring them in like that. So the training, uh, the teamwork, just just creating a network of people that work together versus a group of people that are in a role and they don't ever extend out past that role. Now, I sent you a, a email earlier. I'd written an article on, on metrics. Um, and. I haven't I haven't had it published yet. I've I've shared it with a few people and, and gotten some good feedback. But it's it's the metrics, you know what I mean? We we use metrics to measure everything, right? And if your people uh, in your company are focused on their paycheck, your metrics will be absolutely fantastic, but your results will be terrible, right? Because all they're going to care about is making sure that the metrics look good, make sure that your PM compliance and your you know whatever it is is done in a way that makes it look fantastic, but that doesn't prepare you for the future. 
Whereas if, you know, you flip the other way and you can get your organization on board with the vision of the company and the vision of the future, and they all feel like they have a stake in the game, then yeah, your metrics will be good, but it's because your people will be actually driving, you know, the right actions to, to ensure that the company is protected and their, their jobs are protected because it's right. It is right. And it's, I think something that's really amazing to think about is just how big, you know, these multinational modern corporations are, you know, like your organization, U.S. Steel has 23,000 plus employees and, you know, you know, almost a couple dozen mills all around, you know, geographically spread out. So the, the challenge of that, I'm just curious if you could speak to either kind of what you intend or the, um, lessons learned, like, how do you, how do you achieve that for that many people and that, and such, such large, uh, workforce challenges, you, even once you know what to do, sort of evangelizing that to a, a very large organization is a whole nother challenge in itself. How do, how do you do that? It is, you know, I think the best way to do anything is to prove it. You know what I mean? And that's why we've, we've got a, you know, this, this, uh, case study or the trial, you know, running here at Irvin works right now where we are testing validating this concept of accelerating reliability of, you know, bringing in partners to help us achieve, you know, better OEE performance and better safety and in, in those types of, of uh, goals, you know, in a very short period of time. Um, and once you've done it once, then all of the excuses of, well, that's fine, that may be industry best practice, but it, it doesn't work in steel, or that's fine, that works you know, in, in our tubular facilities, but it doesn't work in our flat roll facilities. Well, that's fine, but this is steel making. You, know, you get rid of all of those excuses because you, you actually see it happen. And then you have to really do a, a hard look at yourself and be like, well, okay, we need those results and we can't afford not to have those results. What do we need to do next? And it, it really opens up that door for that for that conversation and that communication, because there's there, there's honestly no problem out there that is too large to solve. The only problem is, is do we have the, the knowledge and the foresight and can we come up with the strategy to get there? And the only thing that will keep us from that is that personal you know development, personal training, personal understanding, because if uh, if you can. You know, if you can picture it in your mind, you know, we have people in history for thousands of years that have shown us that if if you can picture something in your mind, you can make it happen regardless of, you know, the naysayers and anybody that thinks it's impossible. Nothing's, nothing's impossible. Definitely. Well, what I would share with you, Brian, that I've observed just in what you're doing, and we see pockets of this across the industrial landscape is that the, it it takes a visionary, you know, it, it takes when you do prove it and when you, when you do, you're able to show it, you, you know, seeing is believing. So you can show people and then they believe that anything is possible. But before that comes someone like you who, for whom just believing is believing, you know, I believe that I, right. that there is a better way, or I can tie together what I've seen, what I've done in the military or seen in the military and other roles, and I can apply it and just kind of see around the corner. And I, I would just really commend you for for doing that because you are, you're believing before you've even seen the proof and it only special people can do that. And I, you're one of them. So I would just really commend you for that. Well, I, I appreciate that, but I'll also, I'll also say this, um, in that there's, there's absolutely nothing special about me as an individual. Um, the only difference is that I adopted a practice that was given to me in the Marine Corps that is effective, is very effective. And that is, reading, you know, constant personal development. It should, it shouldn't take my boss or my company to say, we're going to send you to training for this in order for you to build this skill. It has to be me, you know, constantly reading, constantly learning and constantly expanding my horizons because every time you sit down and, and I'll say this too, I don't like audio books because when you read a book and you, you know, you physically read a book, that's an active engagement. It takes action and effort on your part, which makes the connections in your brain deeper than if you're doing a passive activity like watching a video or listening to an audiobook. And so with that active engagement, you get those lessons deeper. That means that your mental modeling is able to uh, handle larger and more complex problems in a shorter amount of time, which means that you're able to see around the corner. You're able to see what's coming because you have experienced it through 
reading and through understanding of what other people have already already been through. So you, you say it's visionary, and, and I totally, you know, I can't disagree with you uh, because, you know, when you look at it in the scope of things, it is, but the roots to that are actually experiences through professional development and through constant, constant reading. I appreciate that. You know, it's also worth noting, Brian, that, you know, your, your organization has to be supportive of that. And I think, you know, US Steel certainly, and we don't, we don't have to talk about our other places where you were previously, but the, you know, just having an organ, it's a credit to the organization that, that understanding kind of the motivation and the appetite for becoming better organizationally and improving the people, improving the culture that you're, that you're being allowed that freedom. So it is a credit to, to US Steel. Yeah, it's it's uh it is, and I've appreciated working here. The support that I've had has been fantastic, um, and it, it comes that hunger comes with you know a real need. You know you know how things are when you, you have a, a monstrous paycheck and you're like, hey, let's go out to eat this week, and let's go out to eat twice next week, and let's go buy a new boat, and let's go do this and that. And when things get tight, all of a sudden there's an urgent need to figure out how to do more with less. And some companies out there are sitting on a lot of money. And it seems that that is a driver inside the culture because there's just not an urgent need to get better. And other, other companies are not. Other companies are strapped every single, every single quarter, um, trying to stay above, above zero, you know, stay in the black. And that creates a hunger. And if, if, if uh, you know, you're in an organization like that, you're more likely to have that hunger and that support because everybody wants a good idea and they want it now. Yes, we've seen that for sure. Urgency, urgency can be a big driver of progress. Yep. Well, Brian, I, I need to start kind of getting. There's just a couple more key questions I want to ask you that um, that we'll we'll start wrapping us up. But this, I've really just so enjoyed this uh, this conversation about what you're doing, and, and just to focus in. So you know, we've we've talked about the people and the culture, and we've talked about accelerating reliability, and, and how you have a you know be dedicated to lifelong learning. What do you think is the single biggest thing? So if you look over the next three years, five years, seven years, 10 years, what do you think is the biggest obstacle that you think you'll be able to knock down in between here and where we really want to be? Uh, it's, uh, it's definitely cultural. It's definitely cultural. Um, you know, I'm working on, you know, this reliability uh, project you know, in, in bringing in predictive technology partners and improving our, our performance. Um, but parallel with that, I'm working on uh, maintenance uh, work management and, you know, transferring all of our work orders into an electronic format and mobile maintenance and, and getting the guys on the floor more used to technology and the accountability associated with, you know, entering, you know, their, what they're doing on a daily basis uh, so that we have better data to go through and better data to make decisions on and uh you know really shortening up that that communication time but i tell them the story of you know i say your mom i said does your mom go to the shop to have her oil changed in her car and they're like yeah and she's probably fairly old because these are the guys that are you know getting ready to retire who are taking all that knowledge with them you know these are the guys i'm talking to so i say you know your mom goes to the shop to change her oil and the lady at the desk says, you owe $700 and your mom has a heart attack. And she says, why? And the lady at the desk says, I have no idea. I'm not the mechanic, right? Who in that shop knows what your car needs more than the mechanic? The mechanic has to communicate that to the lady at the front desk. And through that work order and documenting, this is what you found. This is what you left. This is what you saw. This is what you changed. Um, recommendations for tire chain, you know, replacing tires or brake pads, all that stuff comes from the mechanic. Then the lady at the front desk can read through that and say, okay, it looks like you're going to need new tires soon. It looks like you're going to need new brake pads soon. We changed your oil, we changed your filters, and we did this and that and the other. And by, you know, kind of call it forced empathy, helping them understand that, you know, nobody can understand what those guys do unless they tell us. And this is now the format to be able to tell us. Um, you know, getting those stories out there, it does start to change the culture and we're, we're getting over, it's been about a year up here now and we're, uh, we're, uh, well on our way in helping everybody understand that everybody plays a part in reliability. Everybody plays a part in the maintenance management, you know, the work management cycle. And, uh, by creating that accountability and by creating that, the, the, of course, the skills associated with that, 
they're starting to catch on and see the benefits and now it's starting to move faster. So the culture would be the number one, I think, accomplishment over the next couple of years. And we're, we're definitely on our way. Yeah. And that, that leads perfectly to my second question, Brian. And I, I, I love the, I just love the way you describe it because it's just so real. And the, the second question is just, where do you think it's going to be? So maybe, maybe 10 years is a reasonable Time frame. If you think about all the things you're working on, where do you think we're going to be ten years from now? Oh, you're giving me a long time, aren't you? <laughs> I'll take ten years. I mean, we can we can definitely accomplish this in ten years. Well, ten ten years from now, honestly, um, you know, U.S. Steel has, you know, at one point was number one in steel making, uh, I think, in the world. And right now, I think we're number somewhere around twenty two or somewhere like that. Don't hold me to that number, but it's somewhere down there. And uh, Things have been changing politically. You know, we've had, you know, Section 232, I believe it is, you know, to to declare that steel is, you know, critical for national security. And, you know, we'll see how, how things swing over the next few years. But but the point is, is that no matter where everything external to U.S. steel goes, there still has to be a way to deal with uh, being better and being faster and being smarter than the competition, regardless of who the competition is and, and, and where we're at in any of these business or political cycles. So uh, the next 10 years, I'm picturing, you know, at least the, the goals are, you know, let's have validated this concept of accelerating reliability. Let's get it deployed, you know, within the next two to three years across the company so that we have uh, partnerships that are bringing us r- real value from day number one um, and helping to, to eliminate the effects of the next downturn. So when things get tight again, instead of closing a, a blast furnace, we're going to make one of our competitors close theirs. Or more, more, uh, I'll say the bigger goal would be to make somebody overseas close theirs. You know what I mean? We want America's steel manufacturers to make steel. We don't want somebody else to do that for us. Absolutely. And, uh, so, so getting those things out there, really having a big impact on the culture and and seeing our management and our union and operations and maintenance working together as a team holistically on these problems rather than as separated units, you know, so, so using this to bring everybody together. Yeah. I appreciate you describing that and taking it out to really beyond. I mean, it's, it's beyond just, you know, the, the assets and the, and the equipment. I mean, it affects people, it affects safety, it affects sustainability, it affects our communities and our economy. And it is. We talk about those things at, at my company all the time, as you know, and it's powerful stuff um, because it is. It's, a, you know, it, if you do it right, it's just it's uh, it's better for the world. And that's ultimately what it's all about. Which takes me to my last question. My, the last question I have for you, Brian, is um, this one. I just really it's it's kind of a thought provoking question. I'd like you to think about what it is that you're doing that that you believe is is really true is right but that most people disagree with you about most or many people or most people would disagree with you about what is it that's really distinctive about the way you're approaching things uh well that's a that's a great question uh, i i do uh see see feedback sometimes i get pushed back on on some of these things because there is a perception that it's not necessary or that it won't work and I, I just kind of laugh and chuckle when I see that because uh, anytime somebody says, you know what I mean, you you can't do that here or we don't need that here, you know what I mean, that you, you're looking at it, that person is looking at it from a limited scope. Um, the reality is, is that if if I'm looking at it from a much broader scope and I can see a bigger part of the organization. I can see more second and third order effects of every decision that we make. I can see further into the future. Then I can chuckle a little bit because I know you're wrong, but I know that you got the, you know, you got your intentions in the right place and we can work with that. You know what I mean? I I can take somebody that's bullheaded and wants the right things and maybe doesn't see it right. And we can uh, get them into a place where they, they see things differently and and realize the opportunities uh, that are available. Um, I, does that answer your question? I guess I, I don't know. Absolutely. Well, I think yeah. it just speaks to, to to just who you are and what you do. Is you're just a you're a visionary. Again, it's as we said before, you believe in something 
but, but without having the benefit of seeing it. You just, you believe that something's possible that others can't quite see. And I definitely see that in your work. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, when, when you look at something as an obstacle, so from my perspective, if somebody comes up to me and says, that'll never work and that'll never work here. If that's an obstacle to me, then, you know, then I'm, I'm going to be stuck, right? And you can go back to, you know, Sun Tzu and you can go back to, you know, any number of different tacticians that have written things in the past and say, okay, you know, well, let's look at Vietnam. What did we learn in Vietnam? We learned that if you go up against the strong point for the enemy, all you're going to do is re receive a lot of attrition. You're, you're going to take on a lot of attrition. You're going to be weaker and you're going to be less able to accomplish your mission. So why would you keep going up against that same obstacle over and over again? Find the low point, float around it, you know, get to the other side and then, uh, you know, break down the defenses from, you know, by going through a weak point. You know, we learned that in Vietnam. I think uh, Germany learned that in World War Two and, and with their Blitzkrieg and, and different things like that. And, you know, John Boyd, you know, you've read I think you've read his book now. Absolutely. And, and uh, General McChrystal, they've both they've both got good stories out there about building teams of teams or being, you know, increasing decision-making cycles. And that's what it's about. It's stop beating up against the same obstacle over and over. You have to make progress. So you find your way around that obstacle. And so when I hear somebody say that, you know, it's like, you're not an obstacle, you know, I just need to walk around you to the other side. And I don't mean like, you know, like going around chain of command or, or like subverting people or anything. We're, we're trying to get everybody to the goal, right? So going around them means that instead of hitting them with, you know, no, you're wrong. I'm telling you, this is right. Some, you know, find some way to show them that, that it's right without creating a, you know, a situation where they, they have their feelings hurt or they feel like they've been, you know, put down or something like that. Make it a team, you know, make it a team uh, solution that they came up with themselves. I don't need credit for it. You know what I mean? And then, uh, then they learn something and we move on and, and now we're accomplishing our goals. Absolutely. Well, I, I love how you're able to, um, just apply those learnings from your military background and your just your your creativity and apply them to solve these very real real world problems at US Steel and in the in the broader broader industrial environment Brian I just uh, it's it's a credit to you and I've very much enjoyed this conversation and I'd just yeah, like to say too. thanks yeah I'd like to say thanks for for you joining me uh, here today yeah thanks for having me Jeremy you know love working with you guys and and uh, really do enjoy these conversations too so yeah thank you again absolutely Thank you so much. Again, this has been Brian Ronchek, who is driving accelerated reliability at U.S. Steel, and this is the Industrial Transformation Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Industrial Transformation Podcast, a production of Business Builders Media. Learn more about how KCF can help you on your industrial transformation journey at kcftech.com and check out more shows on businessbuildersmedia.com.